What we looked at last week was we looked at the messenger that was going to come and introduce the servant. You know, we had uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, which seems like we didn't cover that much ground, but there's a lot of stories in Mark that actually cover a lot of information. And so rather than zoom through them and miss out on the meat that's in there, we want to look at each situation and, and how the Lord uh, is teaching us. And, and so this week, as we look at the servant, we know that the theme from the book of Mark is actually found in chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the theme of the book is service and sacrifice. And you know, how many leaders do you know that that is what they want to do for you? They want to serve you. Most of the time, it seems like if there's a leader, then we're supposed to support them in some way. But Jesus never asked us to do that. What he said is, I've come to serve you, and I've come to sacrifice my life and give it to you as a ransom so that our sins can be paid for. Our leader, Jesus Christ, came to pay for our sins. I don't know a whole lot of leaders today that will actually leave their throne and say, hey, by the way, while I'm down here, I'd like to pay your debt. But that's what Jesus did. He wanted to bridge that gap that was broken at the fall in Genesis where we decided that we were going to rebel against his commands. And so we start in verse 12, and we see that, remember, the context is that just last week, before this word immediately in verse 12, he was actually baptized by John the Baptist as an act of obedience and submission to the will of his father. So as we look at him this week, it seems as though the first thing that happens is he's tempted in the wilderness. And so we'll just read verse 12 and 13. It says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Now Jesus was driven to the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Why? Why do you think he was driven there? Well, to be tempted, but why? You know, he, he, obviously there was a purpose for him to be there, but it was his Father's will that he be tempted and that he be tried. Let's take a look at a parallel account that gives us a little bit more detail. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 4, it'll be one book to the left, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 11. I think last week I kind of jumped over all kinds of places and, and Kelly was like, hey, why don't you give us a minute to turn to the pages? And so I'll just sit here and kind of make fun of myself a little bit and then you guys can find the page. So chapter four in Matthew is the same event, but from Matthew's point of view. What it says is verse one, it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, wow, Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, he is, right? We just looked at that in verse 1 last week. Command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, Throw yourself down. And then he quotes scripture at Jesus. I don't know that I would be that bold. But the devil says, and he quotes, he says, For it is written, he shall give his angels charge of you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now Jesus responds to him by saying, if you, excuse me, 
Jesus responds to him by saying, it is written. He quotes scripture again, but not twisted like the devil just did. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now in another account, we won't turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says that now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, being departing from Jesus, until an opportune time. So it's not like Jesus' temptation was over. It was just that for that time, he'd been defeated, and so Satan leaves, and Jesus stays there. Now, Satan tempted Christ all through his ministry in order to discourage him and to get him to give up on doing his Father's will. And oftentimes what we'll see is that if we want to start walking with the Lord, it's the same for us. We get tempted by things that will draw us away and make it a little bit, you know, like, if it would be comfortable if I just didn't be obedient to God in this area of my life. But the problem with that is that it, we're not called to be comfortable. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. And he was willing to go through this temptation. And so, like I said last week, he doesn't call us to do anything he hasn't yet done himself. He calls us to the same kind of things. And so Satan tempted Christ. And this is the battle that's been going on since the first man or the first Adam was created. This was the second Adam's temptation. A lot of people, you know, you, you know about Adam and Eve in the Old Testament. They were in the garden. They walked in the cool of the morning with, with the Lord. Well, they were tempted in the same way, and we'll look at that real quick. Uh, actually, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's in the very beginning. Genesis just means beginning. And we'll look at the fall, the, the beginning. Obviously, chapters one, chapter 1 is the creation, and we spent a lot of time with that. But then you have... Um, the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve, and then you have the first conflict, and that's between something that happens that gets between man, Adam and Eve, and the Lord. And so that's what the whole redemption story is about, to fix that chasm that was made. Basically, you've heard lots and lots of songs about bridges being burned. Well, this bridge got burnt, and it was all because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so Satan is doing the same things that he's always done. Genesis 3, 1 through 11. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So that's what God had told her. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He questions God's command here. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of, you, eat of it, that fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And he doesn't want that. That's basically what it says there. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now look at this, good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Those were the three things that she was tempted in. It was pleasant to the eye. I lost my place. Good for food, pleasant for the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she ate of it. 
Now, she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. See, they walked in the garden naked until this point. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Their first response was, oh no, I did something wrong. And then they covered it. And the best that we can do is take leaves and tie them over our sins. It, it doesn't fix them. It doesn't get rid of the source problem. What it does is it just covers it. So that's what they did. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day like he always did. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, do you think that God really didn't know where he was? Yeah, of course he knew where he was. God's all present, all knowing. But he called out to him and he said, Adam, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. This is what Adam said. And I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, he knew, again, he knew the answer to this. But what happened is that their eyes were open. They were innocent at one point, and then they sinned. They did what he told them not to, and he, they were able to see good and evil. But the problem with that is that God wanted them to remain innocent in that. He didn't want them to have to deal with those kind of worries. Much like we don't want our own children to have to deal with, you know, so-and-so said this to me. You don't want them to have to deal with, you know, getting confronted with things that they shouldn't be worried about at that age. And the Lord, he's a father. And so in the same way, he was trying to keep them innocent. And Satan doesn't have any new schemes here, though. That's what I want to point out. That's the point of going to that passage. He runs the same plays every time. In 1 John, and I think it's going to be up on the screen here, it lays out how Satan's scheme is to tempt us to disobey God. He tempted Adam. He tempted the second Adam, who is Jesus. And he tempts us the same ways. 1 John 2, and this is going to be up on the screen here if you're taking notes, verse 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now I want to look at those phrases, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, simply put, the desire to feel great. Now who doesn't have that? Who doesn't want to feel great? The lust of the eyes, the desire to look great. I mean, you, you can look at our culture and say that, you know, most of the time that people spend, people probably spend most, a lot of their time in the mirror when they're in the bathroom. So, I mean, it says, go in a house and see if you don't see a mirror. We like to look good. We want to be presentable when we leave the home. There's nothing wrong with these things. The desire to feel great is not a bad thing. The desire to look great is not a bad thing. The pride of life, that's the desire to be great. Well, all of those things in and of themselves are neutral. They're not bad things. The problem is, is that when those desires get between you and what God has commanded, if those things, those three things, and they're the same play that the devil will run every time, if those three things get between you and what God has taught you to do and that he said in his word, then they're bad things. If they'll cause you to sin. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But what I want to sh show you is in Genesis, that's what happened to Eve. And 1 John 2.16 kind of enlightens what was going on in, in Genesis chapter 3. It says in verse 16, if you still got it open there, When the woman saw, 
key word there, that the tree was good for food. It could make her feel great, right? She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. It looked great. And a tree desirable to make one wise, the desire to be great. She wanted to have wisdom. Satan implied, and notice there, that Satan implied that God didn't have her best interests in mind when he said not to eat it. That was the lie that was made. And so she took of its fruit and ate because she was drawn there. So there's no problem with these desires, like I said, unless they cause you to transgress or to knowingly go against what God has said to do, which Adam had been given a clear command about this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. If you look over there real quick, see, Eve wasn't created yet. Adam was. And he was told clearly, here's your command. It was the one command he was given. Only one. It says, Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Lest any of you men in here get cocky and think, Oh, see, it was Eve's fault. You know, it was her fault. 1 Timothy 2.14 says that Adam was not deceived. He knew the command. But it says that, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. She didn't know. Now, Adam was responsible to teach her the command. But now, even though Adam was not deceived, he knew the command of God and he sinned anyway. As it says in Genesis 3.17, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate it. So he was just as responsible So Jesus came to deal with this sin issue, and for him to be a spotless, pure sacrifice, he would have to be without sin, right? It's important to note that he was tested in this area not to see if he would sin, because God can't sin, and he can't be tempted by evil, but to show that he could not sin. Satan wanted to destroy Jesus, and God used that to show that Satan could not defeat God. Yet Satan tried anyway in the same way that he tempted Adam and Eve. And so Jesus' first temptation, if you want to turn back to Mark now that I'm off of that segue, if you go back to Mark chapter 1, excuse me, I was reading from Matthew, and I think it was 4, verse 1 through 11, the first temptation that happened was in Matthew 4, 4. His first temptation was to turn the stones into bread, to fill his stomach, and doing so he could depend on his own resources instead of his father's. The point of him going out there and fasting was to strengthen himself in the Lord. And uh, there's actually a passage in in Isaiah that says that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. A little bit of weight training out in the desert, W-A-I-T. And it's written, and he responds by using God's word, not his own wit. What we would like to do is go, I'm not going to do what you tell me. But what he did is he responded by using God's word that was already stated in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's in Deuteronomy. So Jesus' second temptation was to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. This means that he was going to force the hand of God to catch him, send his angels. And angels do exist, by the way. I don't think that they're, you know, we kind of give them a lot of emphasis, but the main point is that they're servants of God like we are. And so to, to force the hand of God in order to save him from falling off the temple would make, make Jesus look pretty good, right? Hey, I'm the son of God. Here, I'll prove it. And he jumps off. Well, he's, he, could, he wasn't going to do that. It wasn't his time yet. It wasn't the way that the Lord wanted to reveal himself. 
Anybody can do a miracle. What he was going to come and serve, it was serve and sacrifice. He was going to serve us. And to me, that points out to the fact that he's way stronger than most of us think. Because to me, to show yourself in a mighty, miraculous way is a way cooler way. But he wasn't trying to be cool. He was trying to be submissive to God's will. So he responds, it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And a lot of people say that when you go skydiving and stuff, you're tempting the Lord. And You know, you can go either way on that. But the, the idea is that Jesus wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to tempt the Lord in something that he didn't have to do to prove that he was God. Jesus' third tempt temptation was to fall down and worship Satan. He offered him all the kingdoms of the world, right? He offered Jesus all the earthly kingdoms and their glory. In order to tempt Jesus to be great, which he was going to be anyway, but to do it sooner, to do it on his own. So who would get the glory in that? Well, Jesus would. It wouldn't, his father wouldn't get the glory, and that was his whole purpose. So Jesus responds by saying, Away with you, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So that's in Matthew 4.10. So Jesus desired to only please his father. He was living for an audience of one. He didn't care what the guys thought that he was getting ready to hang out with. He didn't care what the crowds thought. He didn't give himself to their opinions. What he did care about was doing his father's will. He wanted to please the Lord. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 11, something that I thought, it made me think of what Jesus has done here. It says, Psalm 119, 19, verse 11 says, Your word, O Lord, I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Our only defense against the Lord is his word. He defends us. We don't have to defend ourselves. And that way, when you do say something in truth or in love to somebody and, and they feel defensive about it, you don't have to worry about, you know, if they get offended at you, go, look, I didn't say it. It's just in God's word. Lots of people got a copy. I'm not the only one carrying it. And so we will be tempted and tried. And when we are, what is really in us will be squeezed out. Jesus gets squeezed here. Jesus was squeezed out squeezed out and his response was using God's word and it, it, it's just what was in him. He, he was loving but he was also truthful. Will you be as Jesus or will you respond like Adam and Eve when you're tempted with your evil desires that you have in your heart? And with that being said, I want to talk about that a little bit because we find out from this temptation that our Savior was so bent on pleasing his Father and redeeming us. He did this for us. He was tempted in every way that he wouldn't sell out for earthly kingdoms, which, you know, a lot of us would, I probably would, for fame, or even a measly loaf of bread. You know, a loaf of bread seems silly, but a kingdom, come on, bring it on. But he didn't want that. He was going to have a kingdom anyway, an everlasting kingdom. He knew that. Definitely a savior that can be fully trusted. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15 said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That's this man. This is, this is Jesus. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. See, he wasn't tempting Jesus. Satan was doing that. There's this plot going on behind the scenes. And everything that God wants to do, Satan, after the fall, the fall of Satan, he wanted to usurp everything that God wanted to do. See, Satan, many call him, and it's true, that he was the first worship leader. And what he said in Isaiah was he said, I'm not going to follow God. I want to I be the most, I want to be like the most high. I want to I have all the glory and the fame. And so he was cast out of heaven and he was sent down. Well, then 
Next thing you know, if you can't hurt God, who is infinitely strong, what do you do? You hurt who God loves. Adam and Eve were loved by God, and what he did is he goes, fine, I'll make your own children sin against you. And so that's what he does. But the purpose of Jesus' temptation was not to see if he would, but to prove that he could not sin. And that's what it proves, you know. We struggle with sin. That's a fact. Every day, even if you know the Lord and you walk with Jesus daily, you're going to be tempted to sin. But the cool thing is is that Jesus wants us to imitate him in not trying to combat it in our own way and not succumbing to it either, but he wants us to find strength in who he is and and know that he's not he's not allowing us to go any, through anything that he hasn't first himself gone through. And he wants to give us the strength to come through it. But we have to avail ourselves to his word. So the other purpose was to provide a high priest that could relate to our situation. Who wants a high priest or a leader that can't relate to what I'm going through? I know I don't. I want somebody that can relate to what I struggle with day in and day out. So that when I call out to him for help, he's not just giving me some ivory tower answer. But he's giving me an answer where it's like, hey, I've been there and I know what you're going through. Read this chapter here. See, I went through it. Here's how you can battle against that. Here's how you can come through it and not be scarred. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through 16 says, We, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands them. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet he did it successfully. He was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When we're tempted, he wants us. He's not too busy. He wants us to come to him and say, hey, I'm being tempted and I really want to do this thing, but I know that I'm not supposed to. Help. And he wants that. He wants us to be dependent upon him in that. He loves us. He's, he's made himself available. His cell phone's never busy. He's not too busy to answer an email. Like, he wants to hear from us. And so... With that, we'll go on to the next part. Verse 15, 14 and 15 in Mark chapter 1. It says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now if you remember last week, who else preached that? It was John J to the B. It was John the Baptist. And he was preaching the exact same thing except for this phrase that it says, the time is fulfilled. See, Jesus came in the perfect timing. And what I mean by that is it was the perfect time, even historically, he came down from heaven right at the time, just so happened. We, we always like to say, well, that was lucky or that was coincidental, which there's no such thing as that. But it was providential. See, God's not, you know, he's not unaware of what things are going on. And so he knows when it's time to send his son. And he sent him at the time when they were just getting this intercontinental road system to where when he did die on the cross and then resurrect, that he could send out his servants to share that good news that we're studying tonight. He sent them out and they were able to walk to the next city, the next town, and it was a super highway. They didn't have the internets. They didn't have the Facebooks. What they had was word of mouth. And so these men, having the word of God, having their own personal testimony of it, they went out and they shared with everyone that they talked to. In the book of Acts, one of the first guys that heard it was um, the eunuch that was from Africa, Ethiopia. He was just walking along, along the road and he had a copy of the Old Testament scripture from Isaiah. 
And so one of God's servants, and I'm drawing a blank, I can't remember his name right now. Who was it? They were walking along the road, huh? Philip. It was Philip. And Philip, thank you, Ezra. Philip was walking along the road, and what happened was this man was reading Isaiah 53, and it's about the suffering servant that was to come. It was a, a foretelling of it. He said, you know, I don't know what to do with this passage. Can you explain it to me? Well, Philip knew the guy that knew the guy that knew Jesus, and so he was like, yes, I can tell you the answer to that. It just so happens that I know. And so he shared the gospel with him, taught him about repentance of sin and baptism to be identified with Christ. And the guy looked at him, he said, well, what's stopping me from being baptized right now? He said, well, let's find some water. And they did, and they baptized him, and a new convert was made in Christ. It's no different today, folks. Basically, we have the same entrance. We have Jesus Christ in us, and he sends us forth to share the good news. And so that's why we're studying it. So after John was put in prison, now it's interesting that it's just in, you know, in Mark we get these little snippets, but I want to look real quick at Luke chapter 3. If you turn to the right one book and go to the ch third chapter, and we'll be in verse 18. It says, With many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. Now, I realize that's like kind of seems out of context, and it kind of is because I didn't read the whole passage. But for time's sake, briefly, John the Baptist was a bold individual. And when he found out that the local king, who was Herod, had taken his brother Philip's wife, her name was Herodias, and marrying her, among other sins that Herod had committed, John firmly rebuked him. Now, John didn't just go around rebuking people. He didn't just, hey, you know, he wasn't just at Casey's down the street. He's like, sinner, you need to repent. You know, that's how we often hear it. You know, you got the doomsday guy standing in New York City with the big sandwich board that says, the end is near. Watch out, man. No, what he was doing is he had a relationship with Herod. He was well thought of by Herod. We know this because he only put him in prison. He didn't have him put to death. But what he did do was Herod had this form of godliness. He confessed to be Christian, he was, but he was on the fence because he really cared more about what people thought. And it does not end up well for him in the long run. But in this passage, what we find out is that John the Baptist, because of his truthfulness, because of his boldness and his zeal, what we find out is that it got him in jail. But what we know about John the Baptist is what he said at the end of his ministry. He said, for Jesus to become famous, I must decrease and he must increase. See, the, the ministry of John the Baptist was not to be a great preacher and to show up in all the circuits and on TV. Obviously, they didn't have TV. But what he, his job was to do was to, to, to prepare the way for the servant who would come, who would be greater than he. John the Baptist said last week, he's not even going to be worthy to untie the guy's shoe, right? So he said, here comes Jesus. So when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist keeps ministering, but in the meantime, he kind of fades out, and, John, and then Jesus fades in. So when this takes place, it has been said that all it takes for evil to flourish in the world is for good men to do nothing, and John the Baptist was not that man. Kind of got off track there for a minute, but what I wanted to say is that John the Baptist, though he was zealous and it got him in prison, it needed to be said. Hey, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, I'm going to hold you to that standard. And that's, the Lord, that's how the Lord works. 
If you want to call yourself by his name, you're going to be held to that standard. But it's in a good way because what we don't want is a bunch of people walking around saying, oh yeah, I follow Jesus, and then their life not matching up with that at all. And then people start to go, well, if you follow Jesus, I don't want to do that. You know, we want to have a good testimony for the Lord. So when this takes place, Jesus travels to Galilee preaching the same message that his forerunner did. So as John fades out, Jesus fades in, which makes sense because John's purpose was to usher him in. Now we've just seen that Jesus cannot be defeated by Satan, but what we can do, what he can do is take your life and he can make it worthwhile. So he begins by selecting his disciples. And it looks like we'll find that his selection process is much different than we ourselves would use. I've heard it said that if many churches today would put an ad in the paper for an open pastorate or for a pastor, a church leader, they wouldn't have hired any of the guys that Jesus picked out except for one. You know who that is? Judas. The one guy that ended up betraying Jesus, everyone would hire because, I mean, look at his credentials. And, you know, he was a, he, he was a son of a religious leader. He had all these good credentials, but in the end, he ended up being the completely wrong guy for the, the deal. So when this takes place, we see that he starts picking out these guys. And so we're going to real quickly look at it, but we're also going to look at the requirements that it seems Jesus gave these guys. So verse 16 through 18, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now hold your spot in Mark and turn with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 verse 35, what it says is that again the next day, John, being John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. So apparently John had his own disciples that he was leading around. And looking at Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now he's got these two guys with him, and he's going, Hey, check it out. It's the Lamb of God. This is the guy I was pointing you to the entire time I was discipling you. And so the two disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus. That's how you know you have a good pastor. If in everything he does, he doesn't say, Hey, you need to follow me and do everything I say. But if he spends all of his time pointing you to Jesus. That's what church leaders should do. They should never say, hey, look at me. Although Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should have godly attributes, but we should never be saying, hey, I'm the solution to your problem. We should be saying, hey, get a relationship with Jesus. Work on that first and then everything else will become right. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the context was the needs that they'll need. So Jesus turned, seeing that these guys were following, and said to them, What do you seek? Naturally, if somebody starts following you, you turn around and you say, What do you want? Why are you following me? And that was his first question to them. And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, Teacher. They said to him, teacher, in other words, we're submitting ourselves to you. We want to learn from you. Where are you staying is their first question. And he said to them, come and see. So they followed him and they saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour and one of the two who heard John speak followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, 
We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. That's how we know him. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So look at Andrew. He was an early disciple of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist introduced him to Jesus, Andrew accepted him as the Messiah. He goes, this is the one that John's been pointing me towards. I'm going to follow him. And then Andrew immediately introduced his brother, Peter, to Jesus. That was his first thing. He's like, I got to tell Peter. Obviously, they had a pretty good relationship. And we find out that they fished together. So they were close. And Peter and Andrew were natives to Bethsaida, which is a city on the Galilean Sea, which is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. So they had had a relationship before this passage here. It's not like, John, it's not like Jesus came in and he goes, uh, Hey, uh, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It wasn't just the first thing he said to him. There was some, back, there was some context there. So they both called the him him to full disciples, excuse me, they're both called to be full-time disciples here in this passage. So what I notice here is that Jesus gives Simon, which means he has heard a new name. He says, you shall be called Peter, which means stone. He saw that Peter, what Peter had become, not because Peter was known for being firm and planted. Obviously, if we see him later, we see that he kind of runs off at the mouth, says the first thing that comes to his mind. He kind of fumbles over things and you know, he's, he, he just gets himself into a lot of trouble with his mouth. <laughs> Maybe I'm saying something wrong. But he, he's rough around the edges, and he's unrefined. Actually, there's one slide up there. Is it the one with the picture? There's one up here with a picture. This is an actual picture from last week. Or a, there's a group in Israel, and this is a picture of an actual fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. This is how I picture Peter and John. They weren't refined guys. They're just out there doing what they do. They're fishing. One guy's got a super long cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's like, what's up? You know. Actually, one of the pastors that went, they were looking at, they, he got up and they slept in these, what they're called, kibbutz on the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of like a hut. And while they're staying there, he got up in the morning, he was having his Bible time, drinking some coffee. He went out there, and he saw this boat, and he's like, hey, guys, how's it going? And they're like, what is that guy, you know, what in the world, you know? And it reminds me of going fishing sometimes. I'll go fishing at Bismarck Lake or someplace like that, and I'll pull out first thing in the morning. I'm excited to go fishing. I'll say, hey, how's it going, buddy? And they'll go, yeah, whatever. You know, like, who are you, kid? You know, <laughs> this is my lake. But uh, anyway... <laughs> Fishermen are not known for being, you know, smooth talkers or, you know, they're not known for their friendliness. They're known for catching fish. Like, that's what they do. That's how they make their livelihood. But what we don't, what we see here when he names Peter Stone is we see that he is calling him something that he sees in Peter. He doesn't see Peter as a stable guy, but what happens is Peter's relationship grows with the Lord. He becomes a stone, a living stone in the church. And that's what the stone's made out of. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 6 will be on the screen. Don't turn there. But what we see is that <coughs> Peter later on, taking this idea of being a living stone, personalizes it, and he looks at the body of Christ, the church. We think of church and we think of a building. Now, obviously, here we don't have our own building, right? The church is, who's in the seats? It's the people that make up God's redeemed. And so in 1 Peter, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. 
If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So he's building up this house, but it's a, a house made out of people, living stones. So Peter gets to be one of those. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but we find out is that the church has this foundation made up of these 12 guys that Jesus picks. Now later on, Judas obviously betrays him, so they've got to pick somebody else. But they have these specific seats. Verse 19 through 20. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets, and immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after them. Now, James and John are also brothers, and it seems they actually have a fishing business where they partner up with Peter and Andrew. So Peter and Andrew's first response is once they start following Jesus, what do they do? They talk to the next guys they know. They go, hey, we know those guys over there. Can we use them? We fish with them. He's like, hey. You know, and so Jesus uses that organic connection as an opportunity to meet these guys. So in Luke chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a passage that's parallel with this because we get a little more insight into what's going on. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now when you see that, it's the Sea of Galilee, it just has a different name. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little boat, excuse me, put it out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the multitude from the boat, so that he taught from their boat before they ever became his disciples. He had stopped speaking. Once he got done teaching, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Now Simon Peter, Simon at this point, answered and said to him, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help him. And they came and filled the boat, both the boats so that they began to sink. They were so full, they were overflowing. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on I will catch men. Excuse me. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and they followed him. So what made these men so special that Jesus would, excuse me, what made these men so special that they would choose these guys to be his disciples and later send them out to turn the world upside down? What I want you to notice and what I noticed was, praise the Lord, I'm normal and so were they. There's nothing special about them. We see them in stained glass windows with halos on. But the only thing special about them is that they knew the Messiah. They knew Jesus. And so here's what made them special. First of all, Jesus called them. He talked to them. He called them. He said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He also asked them, hey, 
Can I use your boat? I'd like to go out there and preach to these guys. So number two, presence. They were available. Now there's lots of people available that God calls to do things. Not a lot of people respond. So number three, they were willing. They were humble. They were willing to follow at his leading and do what Jesus asked of them. Simple things. Not like go and preach the gospel, but hey, take your boat out a little farther. Or number two, hey, go catch fish where you haven't been able to all night. Now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. If I just spent the whole night fishing and I didn't catch anything, I'm not going back out there. It's raining. You know, it, there's always an excuse. But if I didn't catch anything, I'm not going to fish in that same hole again. But that's part of fishing, fishing where you haven't caught fish before and then catching them, right? So that's what he, he does with them. They were called. They were available. They were present. And they were willing and humble. And number four, they were transparent. They were just honest with him. Notice Peter's response. He says, hey, man, I'm a, I'm a sinful man. I don't know what you're doing and why you'd be around me, but I'm a sinful man. You don't need to be around me. And Jesus doesn't say anything to that. He says, catch some fish, and don't worry. From now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. Do you know why God chooses to use normal people like these men? First of all, because he gets the glory. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31 says, it gives us a little bit of insight. God doesn't choose people because they're great. I'm not up here teaching the Bible because I'm great. Actually, what it says here is that I was called uh, because I wasn't mighty, I wasn't noble, and uh, I wasn't wise according to the flesh. And because of that, I, it was easier for me to come to know the Lord because I, I realized that I didn't have anything to give. 1 Corinthians 20, chapter 1, verse 26 through 31 says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen, here's what I am, this is my life verse right here, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He chose me because I was foolish. He's chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of this world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him, you are in Christ Jesus, whom became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If there's anything we can boast about, it should be of the Lord and what he has done in us. Not anything that we have to offer because we don't have anything. The best that we can do is offer filthy rags. And it's disgusting to him when we try to give him something. Now, at the same time, what he does is he... He does want us to give what we do have to give. He takes it. He takes the bread and the fish, and he multiplies it. He feeds 5,000 people. That's what he's wanting to do. So simply put, if God does mighty works and limits himself by using average people like me, then he gets the glory and not us. How silly would it be to thank a scalpel for saving our life after an emergency surgery? We wouldn't do it. That would be ridiculous. You'd make sure that the surgeon was thanked, Probably give him a big stinking hug, send him a Christmas card, hopefully, and you would tell everyone you know, hey, go to this guy, save my life. You would want him or her to know how grateful that you are for what they have done. And since Jesus is the one who came to rescue us from the mess we got ourselves into in the first place, I want as many people to know it as possible so he gets as much glory as possible. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and how it shows that, uh, that you love us because we're ordinary. And uh, there's lots of people that aren't, that you love them too. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for 
saving me. I thank you for your word and how it teaches us about you and how you've dealt with people in the past. And I thank you for caring about the little guy. Thank you for serving us and sacrificing your life and being tempted in every way that I was. If I came to the earth and if I was in your place, I wouldn't have wanted to go through the temptation, that's for sure. And so, Lord, thank you for loving me enough not to sell me out for a loaf of bread. But, Father, I just pray that as we go out and worship that you would bless, Lord, that your word would go forth in our hearts and it would continue to teach us as we go. In Jesus' name.